rock in his cradle. Um, I don't necessarily spend a lot of time in creativity for titles, but there was a reason that I wanted to move in this direction. When you're moving through your department stores, when you're traveling through town, those corporate decisions to jump way ahead of the actual time frame of the event, I mean, they proceed so fast. The lights are up or other kinds of cultural celebrations they're up well in advance of simply a day but I felt that what I wanted to do was to travel with the church to what will be a consummate day in which we celebrate the actual what I believe as the gospels would present time of God's visitation upon this earth to do that, though, the journey takes us back to the very beginning. It would not be necessarily unfamiliar to you, and that's fine. That means you're astute, you're a scholar. You know the way it goes. Some people never hear the Christmas story in faith because there's the cultural story in simply stuff. And what we're doing is wanting to anchor ourselves in the beginning, we want to see what is it that God knew and that he did in advance of a day that we celebrate that work. What is it? So I'm taking you back to Genesis right now. You'll see how the title, I believe, plays in. And it is a word play. Rockin' his cradle. Immediately, some of you are thinking, I'm sure, of some of the bands notable in your life's history, albums that you had, CDs, eight tracks, cassettes, oh, now zip drives, whatever it is. Most of us are familiar with that term. But I want to say that with regard to the term, God finds it a special term as well. He'll identify himself as the rock of ages he will hide a great man who was greatly intimate with him in the disclosures of truth and knowledge about him. That was Moses, whose cravings to see God could not be satisfied fully, for God would place him in the cleft of a rock, that he would pass before him and only be able to see his backside. Whatever that translates in your mind, that is a picture, that rock that indeed is what Moses would be hidden in, God ultimately has hidden us in. We find that that rock is a picture of none other than Jesus Christ. He was presented in advance of his humanity as a divine visitor, to this world that the scriptures say and that he personally quotes God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that's notably taken from John 3:16 that's Jesus speaking about himself and the world that he in that quote was upon the divine visitation of God We'll look at other scriptures later, 
But what I wanted to do is to get you back into the beginning so that you can appreciate and savor not only a creative, inventive, powerful God, but who proves himself faithful when what humanity, his apex of creation, the personal signature that he indelibly marked life with, man and woman, failed in the faithful discharge of obedience. It changed everything for all of us. But the hopeful word is that God, our rock, the rock of salvation, the one who ultimately will rock a spiritual cradle, is in his faithfulness true to see us through and to take what the enemy meant for evil and do good with it and triumphant in his goodness to all of us. That's the narrative for today. If you turn to Genesis chapter 1, we'll take a peek in this odyssey of a season that simply seems to pass in one day. But I will tell you as we sit here, we're to be continually in this season walking. The truth that God came as the Son and the Son exercised an obedience to the Father. And the Son satisfied that obedience by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, and by the giving of the Spirit which resides in us. A season in which we can rejoice no matter what challenges you've come from or may go through. Genesis chapter 1. It opens with a verse that is actually both powerful and fascinating. It is the narration beginning the story of God and the manual that we possess, which is the Bible, which was given to us, identified as the oracles of God through the people that we know as the Jews from the land of Israel. Really important to keep that emphasized, the word that you hold, the promises that you have were delivered by them to us. A lot going on in what is happening over there in the Middle East. God is with them. God is with the church. Their enemies both in play and they're playing with God. And our God is not a weak God. He's a God of power and effectual determination to see that his word will not only come to pass, but it will pass upon any that thwart him, that reject him, in a word that we would say spells judgment. This is what we see here. Notice, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're taking the story of Jesus back to the beginning of creation because we want to see what his intent was before things got a little messed up. And it says that in this, the earth, verse 2, was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So something to be reminded of that you know between verse 1 and 2 a cataclysmic incident happened. God created. And then what we see is in what appears to be a cataclysmic incident, he hovers, broods by his spirit over the waters. 
God doesn't create and then uncreate. Something tragic of consequence happened. The scriptures give us indication in several points. Jesus himself speaking that he was there seeing Lucifer fall like lightning to the earth. If you don't remember this, one of the things that should come to your attention is that he was rejected from heaven because he objected to his position in heaven. He was a rebel without a cause. And he was an archangel, magnificent. It's why one of the things that you need to rejoice in, which we try to celebrate with, I think, both care and excitation, is the penning of songs. He was a worship leader in heaven. And so when he was in rebellion and took a third of the angels with him, he became altogether different than what he was purposed for. It's really important to note that in this season, Satan is still at work endeavoring to make those who love God different from what they were purposed to do, which is worship him. And it happens in garden moments like this. God's done a creative work, and Lucifer, the fallen angel, known now in his present state as Satan, the devil, intends to do another cataclysmic event in the life of a believer who's intending to exercise faith. This, by all examination, would be not only intriguing, but breathtaking to see the work of God presented here in chapter 1 and to understand that when he's completed in this work and it zooms in to the particulars of how he did it, it would have been awe-inspiring. I've been to places that are beautiful, as I said, we came from a place that is known for its beauty. I was surprised also that what was not evident to me going there is that Kona has a primitive feel to it. It doesn't have necessarily, in my opinion, all of the finances that have developed it into, you know, 10-story buildings and things around Big Surf. It's a, in my opinion, it's a very humble, beautiful island. But it wasn't heaven to me. It just, as it was, was evident. It's a lovely place to be. But I will tell you on my return, this here in this place is a lovely place to be. What God tells us in his word in this particular narrative right now is, He's into starting something. And he's into that start, having the return of an investment that he makes that is awesome. And nothing is going to deter him from that investment. He clocks out the days for us and the things that he did within those days because something special he was doing was for two people that yet to be created were to be significantly special in the heart of God as one in whom he could devote himself lovingly as their creator. 
and who he could bestow upon them the authority and governance of himself through them to both worship and to raise up a generation underneath them to be those who in procreation that was holy by a divine marriage that he sanctified fill the whole earth with whom people like you and I who could learn to love God in a perfect place. That's what chapter one basically begins to set an outline for. You see, if we don't understand that when Jesus came, it was to satisfy ultimately what was intended from the very beginning, we get lost it almost would seem as though God simply had a third or fourth thought as opposed to from the very beginning said, I'm a concluding God. What I begin, I will have conclusively satisfied. And so when we talk about the story of Jesus being born in this land, this land, the land that I'm reading about, then it has only one merit to it. He loved the world. He loves the people in the world. And because of an incident that simply now explains a cataclysmic, both spiritually and naturally, it tells us that that's not going to stop him. Chapter 2 tells us, as it zooms in on what God is showing us, the beginning of a family, a beginning family that would populate the entire world to live in fellowship with him that was perfect. That thing, that creature, that fallen being, and the third that launched from heaven with him, however that would look, missiles from heaven, bombs from the clouds, I don't know. They were just cast out, and it was devastating. God recreates and there's this sigh and there's this sense that everything's going to be fine. And then there's the subtle whispering. There's the disguise. There's the intrigue of will they, under testing, will they, in time of temptation, be able to withstand because of the word of God, the goodness of God, being deceived being disobedient to God and ultimately submitting then the world in itself into the hands of corruption because of violating the principles of God. It's quite a storyline. Nothing has been captured, in my opinion, adequately on film. They've tried. I'm always disappointed in something. The way that Hollywood imagines the garden to be the way that Hollywood imagines Adam and Eve to be. Nothing could creatively capture the perfection of Adam and Eve in fellowship with God Almighty personally in such a spectacular created place as the Garden of Eden. You see, stores are going to dress up things to attract you to something that for them renders profit. How much of an investment can I get? from them, our customers, in a season that is a season of giving. 
I don't fault anything with regard to what you may indeed say, I'd love to get this for that person, for them, for myself. I would love to dress up my home in a manner that shows festivity, but also faith. None of these things are relevant to this story right now because we're going to exercise in a spirit of hopefully love, charity. We're going to be exercising in a spirit of faith, but we have to be able to tell people, what is it about this season, about Jesus being celebrated authentically, not simply that it's a holiday, but it's his day. It's the time in which the world recognizes his intrusion into the world under deep delusion. God moved, and he did so in such a way in which inexcusably no one can say, I didn't know. There's no excuse that satisfies it. This is only chapter one. It's only the first two verses. But it's the beginning of really our faith in the Lord. In this sequence of verses, I want you to take a look at it very carefully, if you would. Go to the 26th verse and up to 31. This is Genesis 1. And this is only marking in this narration of God's heart to have fellowship with man and woman, them, in a place that he created special. Notice what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, the triunity of the God that we worship, also celebrated in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the plurality of a single God, identified as one God in three persons. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 27 says, so God created man in his own image, not the image of man, but in his own image, in the image of God, it says that he created them. He created him male and female. Argument over. He created them. He created earth. Cataclysmic event. He recreated by speaking the word and light. Do you realize that the word of God spoke light into darkness? As the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters that had been troubled decimated whatever earth would have looked at whatever may have been on it in that place the spirit of god brooded over that change to again purpose to turn it back to what it was intended to be a place for man and the heart that would have a place for god and to dwell with god personally in his glory beautiful then God, it says in verse 28, blessed them. This is a season as we reflect on his word 
and come to terms with the intention of God is to bless us. Now, one of the things that we have in our mind is the challenge, what does it mean to be blessed? The easiest interpretation is to be happy, not with simply things or people, but to be blessed and to understand it is a happiness with God. It is a joy in living for God. It is also an excellency of trusting God, no matter the circumstance and situation that you find yourself in. Have you found yourself in troubling circumstances in what is the close of 2023 to the entrance into 2024? Has there been any event in your life that you would say cataclysmic? Who thought of that? How could that be? Most of us would say, I'd say the majority would say, yeah, I didn't expect that. See, God anticipates anything and everything concerning the behavior of all things. Why? Because he made us. His anticipation isn't to catch us. His anticipation is to save us. It's always a work of enduring and patient grace. Even as we look at this and we see what God's intention was, it was intended for sweet, seasonal, after seasonal, after seasonal fellowship with his apex of created ingenuity, a man and a woman. Chapter 2 zooms in and identifies exactly how the garden looked, and ultimately when it was ready, the man that he would create from the earth that would ultimately be the bedrock and the soil from which these plants and trees and fruits would grow, creating from that earth man. How could he do that? I don't know. I'm not God. We're told us that that is what he did do. And chapter 2 defines that he even refined it one step up by taking from Adam a rib. How do we know that's true? God says that that's what he did. Well, let's count the ribs. It won't matter. That's already been done. The evidence is faith, not the rib cage. That was for Adam. So guys, chances are we have all of our ribs. It's not your excuse. Wives, it's not your excuse to not trust the Lord. Adam was unique. There was a refinement that happened. But as this continues, this is what it tells us. They are to have dominion. They're to have a dominion over all of the creative force and effects that God has put into place. Have you ever had one moment you thought, this is perfection, this is ideal, this is as good as it could ever be for me? I'll bet you one of us would be able to say, yep, I had that moment. How long did it last? A day, two days, a week, a month. To go beyond that is testing that. Most of us, though, could say there was an event. There was a time in which that feeling overwhelmed me. This is as good as I've ever had. This is as great as I could ever hope. That's a moment that the Lord would say, I'm at work on that. I'm at work on that. That feeling that you have 
You remember, you're anticipating it is exactly what I'm working on in this season of your life. How so? Because even as this title is implying God is at the beginning of birthing something that's extraordinarily essential in your life right now. You may say, that seems to be a contradiction. How does God give birth? It's a literal word. It's a poetic word that means God is a creative, divine author in your life. And he's into the stuff that blesses you, even as it was his intention to bless in this season of their new beginning, which would happen, everything that would unfold. Moving to this next area, if I may, they were to have this dominion, they were to have this governance they were to have everything essential, verse 29 declares, over the entire earth. Trees with fruit, it was going to be their food. Every beast of the earth to every bird of the air, everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb of food, and it was so. Verse 31 on this chapter 1, exclamation, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good so the evening and the morning were the sixth day everything in between that point is ultimately what god said good 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 and chapter two tells us only one event after observing everything that wasn't good and that was the aloneness of man in the garden. And it wasn't because of the fellowship between God and him. It was the intimate knowledge that God had of the soul of Adam, that perfect human being that said, not good that you're alone, little buddy. I'm going to do something special from you and for you. And I'm going to do it because it reflects the image of who I am for everyone to know without argument. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. They were created. Awesome. The season that is prepared for us is reflective of the fellowship that God purposed back then. If you want to have revival in your heart and in your soul, in a time in which testing and cataclysmic events have encroached upon your joy, you say, God, I read of the garden and I see your intention. I know that you are good and that you've only intended good. And whatever event has happened in my life that has changed that perspective, Lord, I submit to you right now. I know you're the God that presents yourself as the one who nurtures as a mother and who protects as a father. I know that collectively, the gifts and the talents that were given uniquely to these individuals, fitted together not as two, but now made one, was purposed to show that you are an interactive God. You are a creative and inventive God, both to consume us 
with your love to deal with this in grace and mercy. Back then, it was perfect. A decision was made which took a cataclysmic event for humanity and changed the operational, if you would, direction for all of our lives in which we know we need a savior. We know Santa Claus is from one perspective, only a secular fantasy. From a historical perspective, a man with great charity who had a relationship with God. Culture twists it. History records it. He was authentic. He was sincere. He was real. But he never intended to be the replacement for Jesus. For it was Jesus who from the beginning of both Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3 would be placing himself as the rock into the bedrock of, at that time, culture, society, to introduce himself to a world in which he would redemptively solve the problem of the cataclysm of sin, which leads to death, and without him would lead to eternal damnation. What is it, though, about this as well that I want to draw your attention to? Because the other play on words is simply this, cradle. When I look at that, I'm seeing an infant. I'm seeing the whole thing that with four kids we went through. We went through a variety of cradles, the ones that could sway, the ones that could rock different directions. Dads have probably tried to use a variety of clever manipulatives to do what only a mom can do, and that's nurture and quiet a baby down. We've used the washer, the dryer vibration. We've taken them into carts or cars and driven them around the block. We've done things that perhaps are not necessarily sanctioned by mothers. <laughs> Because mothers are so good about not only handling the needs of a nurturing and needful child, they're getting everything else done in the same time frame. But the cradle, though, is something that I also want to point out to you in this season. It's really important to understand its terminology in both history and sociology. When you hear of the cradle of civilization, you need to understand Though that may have indeed a reflective point geopolitically, it's before that in advance of what God says the place is that he started. Eden is the place that is introduced to us. That's in chapter one. And I'm anchoring you there because it says in the garden there was a river and this river had from it branching from the head four rivers. You mean, so what does this have to do with the cradle? It has everything to do with the preparation of God rocking the cradle. The rock of ages would rock the cradle. And he did so in a term which most of us understand historically is identified as the cradle of civilization. Those rivers only which right now two can be accounted for. You have the Tigris, the Euphrates, you have the Gihon and Pishon. 
and these four were considered mighty rivers. They identified particular sectors of land that had extraordinary wealth within them. They were, in essence, subdivisions of Eden that to each one that you would travel, you'd go, amazing, awesome, wow, get a look at that. That's what these sectors would have been like. When you hear the phrase, from the rivers to the sea, the Palestinians will be free, they are talking about land that is not theirs both to possess nor to ever be given back. I want to let you know that. In this season, God is telling them, it's my land. You need to understand God's serious about what he made, which was a covenant relationship with Israel. And even though the politics may at times mess with your mind, warfare, which hurts your heart, it does not change ultimately what the Lord shall do in what we would say globally is a cataclysmic event through warfare. God will take so much and then he will render to that which assaults him and insults him a judgment. And what you need to know, hold on in this season to being praying for Israel. It doesn't matter your opinion about warfare. We're told that warfare will happen. It's a sign of the times. There will be wars and rumors of wars. And in this season in which we're trying to have a grasp of joy, and we should, because it's a gift of the Spirit, and peace, which we should, because the Lord gives us that too as a fruit of the Spirit, we want to be able to say, and that nation I shall pray for. I shall pray for those people. Can you pray for other people? Of course. Because the reason that they're behaving so badly towards the Israelis is because they do not have God in their life. But if they become Christians, guess whom they will have in their life? God, not Allah. They will have the God of the Hebrews which is our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, period. It's not a complex understanding of what God is showing us, the relevancy of the season dating all the way back then. What's the other thing that I want to remind you of? Well, in the verses that happen in chapter 2 and ultimately chapter 3, there's an intriguing work that behind the scenes is showing us something, anticipating what God's going to do. And a time in which his endeavoring is to rock the cradle. The cradle of civilization was meant to be raised up and to be dispersed over the face of the earth as a choir, literally, of believers who would be singing they would be moving together in the spirit as one, the event happened, sin encroached, death became the reality, and the consequences innumerable that followed. But in chapter 3, you'll remember that when sin had happened and God was quietly walking through the garden to meet with them and voiced, where were they? And what is it that you've done? Do you remember one of the things that they had done? 
in that consequence of the sin, all of a sudden realizing that they were out of fellowship with God, they were no longer experiencing the bliss and the peace and the joy of God, no longer to appreciate where they were, which was still unaffected by sin. It was still, there weren't plants that all of a sudden were withering and dying. That would be put into play. They were still in a perfect place. They were still with a perfect God, but that sin had led them to all of a sudden no longer rejoice in their season. And what it says that they did is they sewed fig leaves together. And what I need to tell you is that was a picture ultimately that through man, God would prepare himself a nation in which he would introduce himself to a world that ultimately would reject him and a people who would not recognize him. As you see on the right and left side of the altar, whichever direction you're facing, they are representations of an olive tree. The olive tree represents, as we know symbolically, the nation of Israel. And it's important to note that there is both representation spiritually and politically. You need to understand that. There's another tree. It's the fig tree. Both of these trees represent a spiritual and physical Israel. It's very important significantly. When Jesus was moving through on his way with his disciples, and there was in the foreground a tree that he would ultimately reach up to find fruit in. It was a fig tree that he reached up for. And so both of these trees represent a national and spiritual heritage that God literally would be saying, I'm bringing to the world ultimately a national and spiritual people that will represent me. One, in the kingdom that I will establish on earth, and two, the desire that I have for a relationship with people, as I did in the beginning, I will forge it through this people, a peculiar people. In the season that we're in, there is, if you would, the actual word of God coming to pass. And that is, quoted in Zephaniah, that Israel would become a cup of trembling, that people groups from around the globe would be trembling. There would be a time in which the sorrows of Jacob would be visited, for even Israel will endure a season of chastening for the rejection of Messiah, which happened when Jesus was delivered over to the Romans for crucifixion. The very Jesus that we are going to be celebrating in this month, and on a particular day, not the true day, but a day that we've accepted, and in the spirit and in faith, we are able to do so with good conscience. God is at work to rock the cradle. He's at work to say, this is my land, and I am going to protect it, and I'm going to plow it. I will turn it into a cup of trembling for all nations to come to me. In this season, God re-rocks the cradle of civilization. 
And the reason that that's important is you'll find yourself severely discouraged if you don't ground yourself in the beginning. God doesn't say, oops, I made a mistake in the beginning. He made no mistakes. We make the mistakes. He's continually at work. What did he do when Adam and Eve had sown together vegetative plants, which I still do believe was ultimately saying that through a nation, a nation that I will both bring up spiritually and I will bring up politically and nothing will be to my eye more beautiful to me than them except for what other nation that's spiritual the church his bride loves his bride he's in love with you guys he's in love with us he's in love with israel the apple of his eye and anybody has to simply do is to say lord i've tried love in all the wrong places but what i want is to be loved by you in the one place that I have not opened to you, my heart. And that any place I go, if you're in love, as you've said in your word with me, and I love you according to your word as I ought to, what I was created to do, then no matter where my place is, Lord, you're at the cradle. You're rocking me. You're nurturing me. You're protecting me. You are God. And my Eden awaits me. Where does it await you? In heaven. Eden is the place ultimately that heaven may indeed signify truly, but God's going to do a recreative work again back down on earth and bring us with him. These ideals are only authenticated by what you believe about the word of God. And if you don't believe the word of God, you're going to believe everything contrary to what God has said. The seasonal message of God is that he is the rock of salvation there at the beginning, constantly creating, constantly correcting, making good out of something that Satan intended for evil. Let me anchor you in just a couple of other points if I can. Deuteronomy 32, and we'll conclude there so that you understand in the play of words where we've been, but where we're traveling right now. Verse 18 says this. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 32. Of the rock who begot you. Of the rock who begot you. This begetting you'll see repeated frequently in the generations that will be given when we look back on Noah's life, a picture also that we'll look at. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons, and his daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. I know it seems like a hard word, but God's declaring himself as the father of those who have rejected him. And by the way, it's possible for any of us at any time under any circumstance to reject 
the relationship that we have with him, the trust and confidence that we have on the next step we take. This is simply to establish this word. He's the rock. You can think of all the sequential geological explanations of rocks, metamorphic, whatever, igneous, sedimentary. He's the top rock. He's the strongest rock. He's bigger than a boulder. He establishes himself like a rock, hides us in the cleft of the rock. Psalm 49, I'll conclude there. Verse 7, the reason for the season and understanding Jesus and what he came for and what from the very beginning he always intended to be faithful at, none of them, verse 7, chapter 49, or Psalm 49, can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God, verse 15, a promise will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. In essence, to this verse, it's speaking of the consequence of what happened in chapter one after everything had been declared as good, 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 good. And then chapter three, bad, not good, sorrowful, loss, redemptively. You remember that the exchange from the fig leaf would be an animal that would be killed and ultimately pelted over their naked bodies, no longer able to enjoy fellowship without shame, but in shame approach him. But the means by which they would have fellowship and restoration was ultimately through an animal that would have to give its life up to approach God. That's the blood sacrifice. That's ultimately what Jesus in this season is remembered for, sure, in swaddling clothes, that's a picture but ultimately it would be by the sweat of his brow that was bloodied in the intensity of praying in order to remain both submitted to the plan of dying for us to make up the difference that happened all the way back in chapter 1 and the consequence of chapter 3 and all the failures of the generations that followed. It brings us to this that our souls will not be condemned with the guilty. We shall not see the pit. We are raised up 
in his resurrection, and we will come down with him. And ultimately, his restoration of Israel and of the world in a season lasting a thousand years, but eternity ever before us. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to continue closing off the month, guiding us through the scriptures, being encouraged ultimately in the rock that indeed cradles all of humanity in love. And just like a mom is intending to comfort and console and see to maturity until the final breath. Lord, we ask for your blessings that as we consider it is a Christmas story because it is about Christ. It is about Jesus, the redemptive plan of God to save us from the consequence of sin, anchored in his love at the apex of creation, a man and woman.